From University of Puget Sound, it's What We Do, a weekly podcast about the innovators, teachers, dreamers, and performers of Puget Sound and the stories behind the work they do. Hello and welcome to What We Do, Puget Sound's weekly podcast show. I'm Chuck Luce, the editor of Arches, Puget Sound's alumni magazine, and your host. With us today is professor of music history, Jeffrey Block, who's been on the Puget Sound faculty since, what, 1980? 1980. I'm one of the old-timers. Professor Block is a prolific writer with dozens and dozens of essays, book chapters, and reviews under his byline. He was a consultant for, and we saw him in the PBS series Richard Rogers, The Sweetest Sounds, among many other radio and TV appearances. He's series editor of Oxford University Press's Broadway Legacies, and he's the author of seven books, among them Enchanted Evenings, the Broadway musical from Showboat to Soundheim and Lloyd Webber, in which, when I read it, I learned that my favorite song in West Side Story, the very clever G. Officer Krupke, wasn't written until the show was already in rehearsals. But we are not here today to talk about American musical theater. We're here to talk about Professor Block's new book, Experiencing Beethoven, a listener's companion, which hit the streets this past October. So welcome, Professor. It's a treat to have you here. Thank you. It's happy to, I'm happy to be here. Um, to, to start, uh, you wrote this book mostly for people like me who are interested in Beethoven and his music, but not a serious student of him, yes? That's right. This is a book that's designed for a general reader without any musical vocabulary, which was really hard. But um, So that's why there's such a long glossary. I don't know if you noticed that there's a, um, a very substantial glossary, so no term gets undefined. Um, in the course of the book. Good for guys like me. One of the motivations behind writing this book was, was that almost 200 years after his death, Beethoven remains a contemporary star. As evidence for that, I'd like to read here an excerpt from the book's introduction. Why is Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the musical protagonist in the films A Clockwork Orange and Die Hard, its scherzo, the theme song of the Huntley-Brinkley Report for 14 years, and its ode performed at every Olympics since 1956. The Big Ninth is heard throughout the Christmas season. Why does Schroeder, Charles M. Schultz Peanuts comic strip character, play only Beethoven on his toy piano in over 250 strips? Why did Chuck Berry demand that Beethoven and not some other composer roll over in his grave? Why did Walter Murphy choose a fifth of Beethoven? rather than Mahler for his disco blockbuster hit of 1976. Why Beethoven and not Berlioz for the name of the slobbering St. Bernard in his 20-year-long film franchise? References to Beethoven in novels, plays, movies, television programs, popular music, classical music, and commercials designed to sell a multitude of products are too numerous to count. Who can explain it? Well, it's good. The, the who can explain it? That's a line from South Pacific, which I like. Ah, to, who can great. tell you why? Oh. Fools give you reasons. Of course. Well, right. And right. this is why my freshman seminar is called Why Beethoven. And I'll give you one other example before I answer your question, or I, which I really can't completely answer. But um, we're reading a chapter in this book on Beethoven America today. And the title of the chapter was, Was Beethoven Black? And in the course of the chapter, the author, why Beethoven? He's about the only, well, one of only very few composers that has been even circulated these kinds of rumors. And there, there are some, you know, really, really loose historical conjectures. But basically, it's why Beethoven? Because he is the symbol 
of Western classical music. He's the symbol of the classical genius. And he's the suffering artist because he's deaf. He has the kind of affliction that is the worst thing for a musician. And uh, he, he lives alone and lives for his art and that kind of thing, a, a misanthrope. and all. So he fits the model. Plus, his music is extraordinarily powerful, even on its own terms. Even, even if you didn't know anything about his life, the music is really, really powerful. And then some of the music is just... Some of the pieces, not a lot, I mean, not that many altogether, but maybe half a dozen that have just really clicked with everybody, like Fur Elise or Ode to Joy or something like that. And if you can come up with a half a dozen of those, you're going to have a higher profile. So he's just somebody that um, fits the bill. He becomes the embodiment of, of, of classical musical art. And that's why he was chosen for Clockwork Orange. You know, it wouldn't work if it was Mozart. It had to be a strong composer like Beethoven that can fit in with that strong theme of violence and music and all of that. So it's what people think of when they think of classical music. The Beethoven is what many many people think of. He's just the embodiment of, of, and not just class, but like the musical genius and the suffering musical genius. That's a big theme that everybody writes about. So that's, I mean, it's not, uh, I was doing another interview and the, and the person reports, he didn't exactly answer the question in the book. I don't say I do. I say, I say I'll try. You know, it's such a hard question, but it's, it's not a coincidence that Beethoven is the chosen one for so many of these cultural uh, phenomena. Not a coincidence. Uh, then what do we find content-wise in, in the book? Well, what I've done is I, I tried to um, do a wide range of genres. Those are categories like symphonies. It's a category. Or string quartets or piano sonatas. And I tried to pick a high percentage of some of the pieces that a lot of people would want to know about. So I did seven out of the nine symphonies. The symphonies are so famous and popular. I did seven out of nine. And I did some of the pieces that have the, the titles, hardly any of which he actually gave. Like, he did get the Pathétique is Beethoven's title, but the Moonlight's not, and I, the Passionata is not. And... But some of the works that have titles have a high profile, so I did some of those. I, I did for release because I know so many people know for release. So I tried to do pieces that I like, a balance from his historical, from his beginnings in Bonn when he was a young man, till he, he lived in Bonn until he was about 20 years old. And then, then uh, each chapter covers roughly chronologically, though there are a couple of chapters that stand out, like I have a chapter on songs, because I think he's a really great songwriter and people don't know about his songs. I have a chapter on Fidelio. I also tried to write chapters on pieces that you can talk about in words, like Fidelio or The Ninth, something that has a text. The songs all have texts. So uh, it's, and the pieces that I really like, and also the pieces I teach. There's a high percentage of relatively high percentage of the pieces in the book that I've taught. And so I try to write in the book the way I would teach it in the class. You know, I'd say those same things, but in a, in a way that anybody, I teach music majors and I teach non-majors. So I'm sort of, I'm gearing for the non-major. Right. 
Um, but <coughs> the emphasis in the book isn't only on the music. It's also on its life. It's not only on the music, but it's, uh, the focus is on the music. And then I, I weave the music in with his life, the major things that are happening. And the uh, most of the biographical parts are how he came to write that piece and like his relationship with Napoleon for the Daroica Symphony, that kind of thing. So it, it's not, I, I, all the major aspects of his life are covered, but it's, I wouldn't want to call it a biography. The biographies is focused on, for example, um, he, there were these big events in his lifetime. Public concerts were rare and they were big events and they're called academies. And so I use that as a theme. So the, it's, a, it's not exactly biography, but I'm talking about what happens at these concerts and uh, the heating went off and, you know, somebody, a clarinet forgot to come in. Because we, we can do, we can read some records and we can find out not exactly what happened, but we can learn a little bit more about what happened. So, so the context of the discussion of the piece is this big concert. So I did that whenever I could. So, so it's not exactly biography, and I'm not passing myself, but biography will enter into it, of course. But we're, we're allowing events to tell the story. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Can we talk a little about the source material that, that you used? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I was originally, my early work was in Beethoven as a scholar, and I wrote a dissertation. And so uh, that was a long time ago, and then I started moving on into other areas. This was your PhD dissertation. My PhD at dissertation at Harvard was on what's called the compositional process of these piano concertos. And I did one of those concertos um, in the book, concerto number one. So that, so, but basically the book's not based on that kind of research. It's mostly based on just a lifetime of reading about Beethoven and synthesizing all the good stuff and trying to get to the, the really interesting things about each piece and uh, based on what the people I rely on, all these wonderful, Beethoven scholars are amazing. And, and the best, I mean, there are 20 really good ones, at least. And so I read all of those, and I did a synthesis of all of that. And then I tried, but the bulk of the book is, is my talking about the piece in my own language. So that's, that's just trying to explain what happens in the piece. Uh, among those stories, among the things that you've found in the, in the source material, can you tell us some of the ones that really stand out for you? Okay, well, some of them, you know, we could know because there was a good biographer in the 19th century and it's translated into English. It's like 3,000 pages. It's not exactly, but there is there is a biography. So, and I, one of the things that's funny is I found that that biography, this old one, was still one of the best because it was so comprehensive. And there's, so I'm not saying I discovered these stories, but uh, one that's quite amusing, there's a song called The Song of the Flea, which is based on a poem by Goethe. And... In the fingering of that's uh, how the pian with the pianist is the accompanist, instead of moving like the third finger and the second finger or whatever, he has the thumb going down the keyboard with the thumb. And there's an anecdote of a story of when he he when this emperor um, has a pet flea and makes him part of the emperor uh, 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 head of the empire and nobody could scratch. And finally, people had enough. And they said, let's get rid of this flea. They killed the flea. Yeah. 
Um, and they, that's how they got rid of him at the end. So, so that was, I inserted that anecdote of Cora. And then some other, there, there are a couple of famous ones. If I, I mean, it's not that, you know, the people listening to this may not be repeating all these anecdotes, but uh, famous, there was a rehearsal of the Eroica Symphony at the Prince's House, sort of like a dry run before a public performance. And uh, the horn player came in um, early and uh, Beethoven wasn't bothered about at all. He could still hear then. He could hear. He could hear the horn. He wasn't totally deaf. And he, it was eighteen four. But his friend said, "What's going on here, Be Beethoven? The, this horn player." And he said, "Well, I want the horn player to come in early." And he was. So, he wasn't mad at the horn player. He was mad at his friend for uh, yelling at the horn player who came in early. And it's it's um, a famous part of the symphony. When you first hear it, it sounds like it's early, and he wanted that. And in his manuscripts, he planned that just to surprise everybody with the horn coming in. So that those are there are a lot of little anecdotes like that. That you know, every anyone that's associated with any of the pieces are in this book because they're they're you know, they're reliable in the sense that you know they're firsthand at least and. Uh, you know they're 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 definitely plausible. How, who can make that up anyway? And anyway, in the score, you see the one 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 thumb thumb thumb. You know, so you don't even if you were playing it the the fingering the way it's in there, you'd be uh, smashing the flea anyway. So we're not even making it up. And Beethoven was himself uh, in his early years a, a pretty good performer. Oh, oh, he was an amazing performer and he, but that was the way, that's what the deafness hit him the most. He still played after he was deaf, but he stopped concertizing. It was really, you know, he just didn't hear that well, but he was a really, fun, he, he made his name as much in the beginning as a performer, particularly improvisation. And there was one, one at one of those academies I mentioned, there was a whole place in the concert reserved for him just to, just to improvise. That was what they wanted him to do. That was part of the concert. It was announced in the program. Beethoven will improvise here. So uh, he was a fabulous pianist. And he's um, and his piano music is at the center of his repertoire. He wrote um, 32 piano sonatas plus a lot of other piano works, both large and small. So, so the thumb, the, the horn player coming in early, Beethoven planned this. Did he go out of his way to do things that are out of out of the ordinary? Or well, it's funny. I'm nodding. You know, people on the radio. I'm nodding. I was waiting for him to. Uh, so, um, yes, I mean he did. He I, the way I put it is he's always trying to do something new. Sometimes really funny, but he is always trying to. Sometimes they say push the envelope. There's a there's a second movement of a string quartet called the Razumovsky. Number one, and the and the beginning of the piece goes, just one note in the bass of the cello, yada da da yada da da yada da 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 da, and the first cellist goes, the first cellist to play the piece said, "You're kidding, you know, you want me to do this?" and 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 he he didn't even want to do it. I mean, and it turns out that that's the beginning of a beautiful subject, and they're all playing that one note, and then it becomes all these other things. And so that's an example uh, of he's always doing things that are beyond what the form was up to that point. And he's there are a lot of things he inserts, but you know something. There's always something in almost every piece. 
something unusual, something another composer wouldn't think of. And, you know, we accept them as they seem conventional because he, he created the conventions, but they were really unusual. And, and so sometimes when you write a book like this, you're explaining to people why something's so unusual. You know, why is this so strange? I'll give you an example. Uh, sometimes people think, can I hear this or not? There's the fourth piano concerto starts with the piano playing. That no, no other concerto started with the piano playing. Just the piano, there's no orchestra. And, and then the orchestra comes in, in the wrong key. And throughout the whole concerto, there, the, it's like a, a battle between the orchestra and the, it's not just a dialogue, it's like, um, like they're misunderstanding each other. And then finally at the end of the piece, they figure each other out. And, and now I think, you know, the idea with reading the book, you can listen to it and you hear that. Yeah, you can certainly hear the pianos playing. You just have to know that's unusual. I mean, never happens. And then when the orchestra comes in, anybody would hear it's in a different place. It doesn't sound like, you may not know what key it is, but you know, you can, and so I try to write in the book things that people can perceive, if not exactly hear, you know, literally everything that's happened. But I will mention, for music people, I'll mention that it begins in G and then it goes to B. So if you're a musician, then you could hear that, you know, hear that relationship or you can play it on the piano or, you know, whatever. So, um, so that's, uh, you know, another one of the things I was trying to do. To, to appreciate the book better, should should are there certain Beethoven recordings that readers can listen to in advance? Yes. Well, the, the book includes a discography. I do at least, um, you know, one or two recordings I like of every piece, of course, every single piece. So every piece you can go to the discography, and a lot of those you can get on YouTube or Spotify. So you can don't have to buy everything. Um, there are no musical examples, though. So, so the discography, and there's also a bibliography, too. Um, but um, sometimes, I'll give you an example. And this is like another, exact, you know, way it's an anecdote. Um, one of the controversial things about Beethoven are his tempo markings, the, uh, metronome markings. And the metronome was invented after Beethoven wrote his first eight symphonies, but before he wrote his ninth. And he knew the guy who invented the metronome. They were friends. And he thought this was really cool. So he went back and put metronome markings in all his symphonies. Very few people follow him. And the reason why they don't follow him is because they seem too fast. And that's because people used to play Beethoven really, really slow. They thought the slower you play it, the more profound it'll be. And then we looked at these tempo markings. Are you kidding? I'm gonna play it that fast? And then some people came along who were interested in what's called performance practice, trying to recreate more about how a, a piece was performed in the composer's time. And they started experimenting with Beethoven's tempo markings. And now more people do them. 
more people, there's some that still seem too fast, but most of them seem about right now. So now if you got a more recent Beethoven recording, the tempos would be faster than they would be like 40 years ago. But there's one in the Ninth Symphony, there are a couple of places that people don't understand the metronome mark. It's either twice as slow as you, not twice as fast, but it's twice as slow or more than twice as fast. And it's so confusing. And so what everybody does is they do something in between. But there have been some conductors that play it that twice as slow and at least one that plays it that twice as fast. And I mention those recordings in the book. So you can, you can easily get a hold of them. They're standard, like Norrington takes that pass. He takes almost everything really fast, except for two little passages. He takes twice as slow as anybody else. And then Gardner, another modern conductor, takes one of those passages even faster than anybody, because he said, well, that's how I understand it. I don't care if it sounds ridiculous. So that's the recordings come in because uh, sometimes if you're trying about tempo, but most recordings, if they're good performers, they're going to be, there are a lot of good performances of Beethoven, you know, way too many. If, um, if I were doing it again, I learned that they, they, they've just come out with um, a volume of all of Beethoven on 86 CDs for about $100. And every little piddly, I do about about three dozen pieces, I think. I don't know, some around there, maybe 30, I don't remember. But he wrote hundreds of pieces. So you can hear, and they're good recordings. And I think that's really fun. I was able to use that in my Beethoven seminar, even like these Irish songs. Beethoven set dozens of songs in Irish songs and Welsh and English, and he did it for money. He got a lot of money. There's English publishers said, and they're in English, and they're pretty obscure. You know, people don't really know them. But um, then I learned in the course of the book is that one of those Irish songs that he said he used as the main theme for the Seventh Symphony, and I hadn't heard the song before. And sure enough, and so he was able to use these this folk tradition and use it as his central theme for like one of his major, major symphonies. So anyway, so there are, real, there are a lot of still, there advice to people, listen to Beethoven. There's so much interesting music, not just the symphonies and sonatas and quartets, but a lot of smaller pieces and obscure pieces and songs and all kinds of stuff. I mean, there's so, there's really a lot of stuff out there, hundreds of pieces. So. You mentioned the note-taking. Beethoven was a crazy sketcher, was Absolute, he not? Yes. <clears throat> he, and when he died, there were 50 sketchbooks in his estate, and he moved about 50 times So in, in one little city, Vienna. And he kept them because there were things in the sketches, material that was unused that he might be able to develop later. He didn't know. And that the sketch act for Beethoven was like the first act. Some some composers started the piano, some composers started a desk, and tried to write the piece. Uh, Beethoven liked to actually sketch preliminary ideas, and that was a habit of his. And in the beginning, there was papers all over the place. But by the time he was twenty-eight, he decided to buy these books, so they bound in these books. And he did that the rest of his life, and he sketched first ideas, second ideas, um, continuity like 
he could get a lot of a movement on one piece of paper. He wrote really small, so you, you could get a whole piece, and then gradually, then you could move to a score. So he, he loved the, the act of sketch more than, and he saved him. So we know more about the compositional process of Beethoven than almost any other composer, and that's was like a whole industry by scholars. That's one of the things I did is it, in my dissertation is transcribing sketches and trying to figure out what what he was actually writing and that kind of thing. It's very interesting. You can learn a lot about the process and he just loved doing it. Then what happened is after he died, people thought these things were worthless. So they ripped them out and gave them as souvenirs. And so for the next 200 years, scholars had to put it back in the box and so reassemble all these sketchbooks. And they finally have. There, there are maybe two or three missing and a page missing here and there, but basically they put it all together and then they transcribed them all. That, they're, they're, only, they're not even half done. 200 years later. Yeah, they're still, it's a big job. It's a really big job. What, what else should readers know before they dive into this book? Okay, I'll tell you the one thing they should know. That they don't have to read the book cover to cover. It's called A Listener's Companion. Start, you know, you're going to hear Beethoven concert and read those five pages. And then read it when you get home. And, and read, it, read it with a recording and see how much you can hear. I tested this out with some friends that like music but didn't, couldn't read music. And if there was anything they didn't get, they told me. So, I mean, so, I mean I'm not saying everyone's going to get everything, but it's, um, it's designed for everybody to get everything. So if you don't think of it as a book that you have to read cover to cover, but a companion to... You can start with the pieces you, you're interested in. Like the worst that could happen is that there's a term there that had been er introduced earlier, but you'd probably find that in the glossary. So it's uh, that would be one thing that I'd recommend. You think of it as a book. It It's cover to cover in that it's cr basically chronological. I start with Beethoven and Bonn. That's the first chapter. And the final chapter is entirely devoted to his, his one of his last string quartets. And the chapter before that is the Ninth Symphony, and other than that, I mean, you could really read it in any order, and I know people have, like somebody, if you're a pianist, there's a chapter on, well, the piano music is spread throughout, but at the end, I have one chapter on all the late piano music, so you can read it in any order, so I think that would be something, that's words of... Words of advice. You have inspired me to, to pick up Good. the book and, and do a lot more listening to Beethoven. Professor, thank you so very much for being here with us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning in this fall. Join us in 2017 on January 25th for the next edition of What We Do, during which we will be talking to Professor Pierre Lee and learn whether Chinese wine is drinkable. What We Do is brought to you by University of Puget Sound. Join us next Wednesday for another story about what we do at Puget Sound. And if you liked this podcast, rate us on iTunes. 